Good morning. Stand with me as we begin this morning singing, God so loved the world. Jesus is waiting 
in a time of prayer as we welcome you. As always, it's a joy to have you in our presence and looking forward to worshiping together here this morning. We're excited to have the Odals with us. Patrick and Ruth are uh, serving in the directorship of BMM and uh, very encouraged to have them here with us today. And we'll share more about them in just a little bit. There are several that's uh, part of our church family that we're continuing to pray for. And I had an opportunity to go out and uh, sit with uh, Judy Hostetter and Jim yesterday. And, and uh, Jim is probably not long for this world and uh, is heading probably into eternity in the next few days and maybe even hours. And so continue to pray for uh, them and uh, the journey that they're on as a family. And then also others that uh, we continue to pray for as the Lord continues to lead them through some deep waters and to guide and direct them. So as we come this morning, there are those opportunities to be reminded of what we're about and then also uh, be encouraged as we continue to reach out into our community and, and seeing others coming to know Christ and to reach into their hearts with the gospel. Let's go this time now to dedicate our time together and to worship. And I hope that our hearts will be encouraged today. Father, we're grateful for the morning. Uh, the beautiful day that you've granted to us and this opportunity to gather in this place to be able to share and what we share is the person of Christ and Lord grateful for the gospel, the good news that changes our lives and moves us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son. And Lord, I pray that every heart here today truly knows that to be their testimony. Lord, I ask that you would just give grace and encouragement. Lord, in each of our lives, there are the things that, that burden us, that plague us and challenge us. And then Lord, we also recognize that there are different challenges that just come through facing life and the, the aging of our bodies and the challenges of life as they come. And I pray that you'd give peace. Lord, we think of the Cobbs today and the Lord, this being their last Sunday with us as you're moving them into ministry opportunities and job related fields. And I ask that you would just bless them and their family. And Lord, I pray that as a church, we would continue to pray for them and uh, the ministries of uh, their lives and the lives of others as their positions change and the direction of their life is moving them in this direction. I pray that you would uh, just continue to encourage them as they find new churches, as they make these different moves as over the next about 18 months to two years. And Lord, I pray that you'll just continue to encourage their relationships and uh, Lord bless them, we pray. Lord, others that are not able to be with us for various reasons, I pray that you would encourage their hearts as well. And Lord, may our hearts be able to knit with theirs and to remind them that they were missed even today. Bless now, we pray. And may you be seen as we minister around the world, as we hear more of what you're doing in other parts, as places, as our hearts grow fond of what the gospel is doing and seeing lives affected because of the gospel. So bless our time, we pray, and we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Sure. Psalm 146 says, praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all of my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. And as we sing the, the songs, as we continue to worship together, I hope that you won't just sing, but you will examine the lyrics, especially in this next song of Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It just talks about the grace and mercies and how God continues to let those flow, never ceasing, it says, into our lives. And our response should be songs of loud praise. I love that phrase, songs of loudest praise, praise of thanksgiving songs that come from grateful hearts. So as we sing 
and worship together. Keep that in mind as we examine the lyrics. Come thou fount of every blessing. Sing with us. Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by
the sure and steady anchor, though the floods of unbelief. Hopeless somehow, oh my soul, now lift your eyes to Calvary. This my palace of assurance, sees love
so much that we can sing with loud praise this morning, Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. All our hope is in you and all the glory goes to you, Lord, for who you are and for what you've done for us. And we thank you and we praise you this morning with grateful hearts for it's in Jesus, our Messiah's name. Amen. You may be seated. So about, uh, I'd say close to 13 years ago, somewhere around 2010, somewhere in there, uh, I walked into, uh, I was at a conference way up in the upper north regions of Wisconsin and uh, walked into a, a little rec shop, rec hall thing there, a snack shop area and sat down at a table and there was Patrick sitting over on the side and uh, kind of just only two of us in the room and so obviously, it was kind of hard to ignore each other, and uh, he was doing his best, but I just wasn't going to be perturbed. And uh, we struck up a conversation, and ever since then, and at that time, he was uh, on staff at Faith Baptist Bible College in Ankeny, Iowa, and uh, was there at the conference representing the school and, and uh, enjoying the conference with me. But uh, ever since then, our paths crossed off and on. We'd see each other, and uh, then the Lord uh, called him to Cleveland, Ohio, to pastor a church in the Air First Baptist of Laurel, and uh, I was there for nine years, and then uh, BMM came knocking, and uh, he's been the director there for three years now. And uh, this is a joy when you uh, have the opportunity to know men like Patrick and to now get to know his wife, Ruth, in a better way, but to see how the Lord leads them and directs them and uh, continues to uh, push and lead and guide men into these roles. And we need men like Patrick uh, leading in agencies like BMM, who has been faithfully serving and sending missionaries uh, for a long time. And he'll share more about that, I'm sure. But I'd like for you to come, Brother Odell, and speak to our hearts, challenge us this morning during the discipleship hour, which is the next hour after our fellowship time. Uh, we'll be hearing more from him specifically and uh, about BML, but uh, looking forward to this morning with him today. And uh, so come share with us here today what God has laid upon your heart. Appreciate that. 
Pastor Adam. He, he mentioned that I became the president of Baptist Midmissions in 2020. And last night we were reminiscing over the fact that he became your pastor in 2020. And so we kind of feel like we are the COVID kids in, in terms of uh, what we uh, both went through. Now, thank the Lord that Baptist Midmissions was not hit by a tornado. <laughs> so your pastor and you as a church, have, of course, have faced far greater challenges uh, than we have at Baptist Midmissions in terms of what you've had to go through with all your building th things and facility needs, all those things. We were talking about some of that last night, but uh, thankful for the opportunity to be here. This is the first time I've ever preached in the Seventh-day Adventist church. And so this is a really cool thing, I think. <laughs> uh, it, it is good to be with you and it's good to just be able to, to share God's word together with you. We're so thankful for this church and its heart for missions. Just again, talking with pastor and his wife last night over dinner and after dinner. Um, <laughs> we were only going to talk till eight o'clock. I think that was the goal was that uh, we were going to go our separate ways and about 930 after multiple goodbyes, we finally wrapped it up because as I told him as I was going out, we could do this all night, you realize. <laughs> but uh, anyway, in, in discussing that, just learn so much about your love for missions and, and missionaries and just your heart for the, the Great Commission and the global challenge of the Great Commission. So I want to thank you on behalf of Baptist Midmissions, especially of course, it's always great to be in one of our sending churches, a church that has sent out a missionary. And with the, the Bergens, it's great just to look out and see them with their family here today. I think it's a beautiful thing when a missionary serves so faithfully like they have in Europe, and then for them to retire and come back to their home, come back to their home church, the church that was a part of their spiritual formation that was meaningful to them even in their days of youth, and then to plug back into the ministry in that church. That's really an, an awesome thing when folks do that. So we're thankful for them and for the opportunity they have to be back here home. And of course, Burdette was, was pumped about getting me here, okay? And he had a part in that. And so I'm thankful for, for them and for their enthusiasm. Thank you also for the other missionaries with Baptist Midmissions that you support. The Broyles are serving faithfully in Brazil. We had the opportunity of being with them about a year and a half ago, and we're grateful for your support of the Broyles family. And then Friezes are in Cambodia, and we're grateful for their ministry. That's a very challenging ministry in Southeast Asia. But thank you for your prayers for them and the vital ministry that they are conducting on your behalf in those places around the world that so need the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'm very, very thankful for that partnership that Baptist Midmissions has with this church. I also want to take just a few moments here to introduce my family. I realize I'm a total stranger to most of you, to a lot of you. So this is my wife, Ruth, sitting near the front or on the screen. We met as a, a couple of teenagers at a little tiny Baptist church in southeastern Minnesota. My sole purpose for going to that Baptist church was there was a youth activity and I was told that there were cute girls in the youth activity, uh, or in the youth group, I should say. And so I met a cute girl at a Baptist church, and my life's been changed ever since in a lot more ways than just Ruth. But uh, thank the Lord for that, and I'm grateful for my wife of 33 years. This is our family. God's blessed us with four kids. We're thankful for the oldest, who on the right there, on the left there, I should say, is with her husband. They live in Alaska. And then the opposite side, our second daughter with her husband, they're in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. In the back row is our third daughter with her husband, and they're in the Cleveland, Ohio area where we live. And then in the back is our youngest son who just graduated from college, and this is his wife. So they just got married in August, and the previous picture didn't have her in it. And so I would be in big trouble if I didn't include Kenna 
uh, in the family pictures. And so Carson and Kenna just got married in August. So that gives you a little bit of a glimpse of our family. And I can't forget the grandkids, all right? So this is Emery and Ensley, our five-year-old and our two-year-old grandbabies. They call me Papa. And I am so thankful for technology that we can FaceTime with them. And little, little Ensley comes on the screen, the two-year-old, Papa, 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 and has stories to tell in her two-year-old gibberish. And we're thankful for our grandkids. Even though they live all the way in Alaska, we're thankful that we can enjoy time together, at least through technology. Let me also just share a little bit about myself in, in terms of uh, my background. I actually grew up in Nebraska, okay? I grew up in, in rural Nebraska on a gravel road in the middle of nowhere. Well, in the middle of every, everywhere, it's called the middle of farm country, all right? It, that, that part of Nebraska is about as rural as you can get, and there are about as many farms as you can get. If you can just imagine corn and beans, corn and beans, and an occasional tree, and then more corn and beans, okay? That's kind of, that's kind of Nebraska where I grew up. I'm curious, how many of you here have ever been to Nebraska? Wow, I'm actually surprised. That's like maybe half of you. How many of you have actually enjoyed your visit? Wow, that's actually about a fourth of you, okay? All right, and I get that because if you've ever been to Nebraska, that's, you know, what I just described is kind of what you have pictured in your mind is lots of corn, lots of beans, lots of cows, right? And probably if you've been to Nebraska, it was not your final destination, I'm guessing. I'm guessing that your final destination was somewhere west, probably Colorado, and you were thinking about the beautiful mountains of Colorado. What was going through your mind as you were traveling through Nebraska was something like, when in the world are we ever going to get out of this flat, boring, barren state? Am I right? For those of you that have been there, right? So that, that was my upbringing. That was my childhood. It was rural Nebraska. And of course, all around us were, were farms. My, my, both, both my grandparents on both sides were involved in agriculture. And especially on my mom's side, a lot of our neighbors that were around us were somehow related. You know, they were shirt tail cousin type of things and, and related to our family. And so when we, when we moved on to this little mini farm, this little acreage, one of the things that dad talked about, he worked in town, but one of the things he talked about was the importance of getting a tractor, okay? So I still remember as a little boy, dad getting a, at that time even, I think it was antique, um, a 1946 John Deere B. Uh, tractor. And as a little boy, one of my aspirations was, how old do I have to be before I get to drive the tractor? That's right. Every little boy and probably a lot of little girls want to know when they get to drive the tractor. So I remember my dad beginning to give me lessons on how to drive the tractor. And finally the day came where he said, okay, Pat, I think you're old enough. I think you can drive the tractor by yourself. You want to guess how old I was when I drove the tractor all by myself? I heard a lot of net numbers out there. I think I heard the one of them that was right. I was nine. All right, I was nine. And part of why I aspired to drive the tractor wasn't just solely related to, to being on a you know, whopping 25 horsepower tractor. Uh, it wasn't that, but it was also because part of what was going through my mind as a little boy was because if you learn how to drive the tractor, guess what else you get to do? You get to be involved in the farming. You get to be involved. And specifically, I remember the harvest time of the year and the combining of the corn and beans and all the flurry of the fall that was so important to the farm. And I thought, man, someday I'll get to be involved in the harvest. Someday I'll get to be a part of the, the corn and beans that will be combined. And I wonder how old I will have to be before I get to be involved in the harvest. And specifically, my other aspiration was this. I wonder how old I will have to be before I get to run the combine. 
Now, if you know anything about farming, you know that the pinnacle of machinery on the farm is this device called the combine, all right? The harvester, the combine. So I remember thinking, man, I I, I wonder how old I'll I'll have to be. And by the way, there is a reason why they don't let nine-year-olds typically drive combines, all right? I was at a I was at a county fair in Ohio where I live now um, just a year ago and there was a brand new John Deere combine with all of the bells and whistles, all the technology, which is insane today. And there was a bean head and a, cor- and a corn head there. And so all three of those combined, the price tag for the whole package altogether was $1 million. One, now, none of the farms that I grew up around in the 70s had $1 million combines, okay? But that at least gives you an idea of why they don't just let any dumb kid like me drive a combine. So you want to guess how old I was before I got to drive a combine? I was in my 30s, yeah. I was in my 30s. I, I was actually pastoring at that time in northern Iowa and was in a, in a rural community there in northern Iowa. And finally, one of our farmers decided, you know, you're a pastor now and you're, you're in your 30s. I suppose you're trustworthy enough to be able to actually run a combine. And so I say all that because my motives in those, in those aspirations were not solely, I want to run the machinery. I want to be a you know, on that big piece of equipment, but they were so that I could get involved in the harvest, so that I could get involved, so that I could help in the harvest. And it's that motif that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 9. If you're not there yet, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 9 and join me in that passage of scripture, because that's where we will focus our attention in our study this morning is on Matthew chapter 9 and verses 35 through 38. Here in the text, Jesus is going to use two agricultural types of themes in terms of he's going going to describe those that he sees as sheep being without a shepherd, but then he's also going to describe lost souls, those who need saving faith in Jesus Christ. He's going to describe them as the harvest, the harvest. And so notice the text in what it says there, beginning reading in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 35. The text describes the account in this manner, 9.35 of Matthew. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So there's the, the first agricultural type of picture. He says, the, the, the people, they're like sheep without a, without a shepherd. They're scattered and they're like sheep without a shepherd. But then notice the second one, and this will be our primary focus this morning. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest, refer, referring to those people that needed Jesus, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. What is it that this text of scripture is teaching this morning? I believe the the big idea of this passage of scripture is simply this, that God wants us to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. God wants us to get involved in the worldwide harvest of souls. Just like I, as that little kid, wanted to drive the combine, wanted to drive the tractor so that I could get involved in the harvest in northeastern Nebraska or northern Iowa, God wants us to get involved in the harvest of bringing people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I want to point out three aspects in relationship to us getting involved, because every one of us can and should be involved in harvest ministry. 
Notice the three aspects. The first aspect is found there in verse 37 when, it, when Jesus says this, the harvest truly is plentiful. I describe that as the size of the harvest. It, the, and this is alluded to earlier in the text because if you back up in the text and you notice what it says there in verse 36, it says, but when he saw the, the multitudes, you realize that, that thousands of people were thronging from the villages and the cities out into the countryside as Jesus was conducting ministry. They were thronging out to, to hear about this miracle worker, to see him, to listen to him. And so multitudes of people were gathering around Jesus Christ. And so it's those multitudes then that he uses that idea to then describe in more detail when in verse 37 he says, the harvest truly is plentiful, plentiful. And so Christ here describes the size of the harvest. Let me just ask you this morning, what are the implications of that? In other words, why would Jesus emphasize the harvest being so large? Obviously, if he makes that statement, it's significant. And so I think there are two implications that are implied by not only the text, but just our understanding of agriculture, our understanding of farming, both ancient and modern farming, all right? The first implication is that the size of the harvest ought to stir within us a spirit of excitement, a spirit of excitement. I mean, think about what you know about the farm. I know that we're in Tennessee and there probably isn't as much farming as maybe there there is in places like Iowa or Nebraska that I've described, but I'm guessing that all of us here have some familiarity with, with agriculture and some familiarity with farming. And so you know that on the, on, in the fall, there, there's just no better time of the year for the farm family in, in terms of their excitement. And, and there's far more excitement when there's a big crop than when there's a small crop, right? Because a small crop means what? You're probably going to lose money that year. Versus a big crop means the opposite. And so the larger the size of the harvest, the more excitement there is for the farm family. And that was certainly true in Jesus' day that is, that is carried across the centuries in terms of agriculture. And so the word that I would associate with the spirit of excitement is opportunity. If you get involved in harvest ministry, there will never be a lack of work because there will never be a lack of souls is what Jesus is saying. The multitudes, both locally and around the globe, are in an opportunity to share the gospel with people. And so that ought to stir within every one of us, when we think about the size of the harvest, that ought to stir a spirit of excitement. Oh, there's so many people that need Jesus. I mean, think about your neighborhood. Think about your workplace. Think about perhaps even your family or your sphere of influence. Are there people that need Jesus? Absolutely, all kinds of people, not to mention souls across the planet today that need Jesus Christ as their personal savior. So the, the size of the harvest, I think, implies a spirit of excitement. Secondly, the size of the harvest implies a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency. And again, especially when there is a big crop, what, what is it like on the farm in the fall, farmers work long, incredibly long and hard hours. As a matter of fact, I heard somebody say, you know, farmers work sunrise to sunset. I thought about that. What I know about farming in the fall, especially in harvest time, no, they work way before sunrise and they work way after sunset. As a matter of fact, when I was pastoring in Iowa, there was a farmer that fell asleep. He was doing his fall tillage and that was after the, the corn and beans were combined and he's doing the tillage. And he was in one of those great big four-wheel drive tractors. 
and he fell asleep because it was practically the middle of the night and 400 horsepower, eight, eight great big duels. Um, can you imagine what, what a tractor like that can do? And so what happened was he fell asleep and the tractor kept going. And so it kept mowing down fence row after fence row after fence row as it made its way from one neighbor's farm to the next neighbor's farm to the next, and he went for miles until finally, asleep the whole time, okay, he'd worked too many hours, until finally that big four-wheel drive tractor met up with a great big oak tree. <laughs> and that great big oak tree stood its ground, as you could imagine, and that tractor started spinning its tires, spinning its tires, and it literally, it buried itself up to the axles and finally stalled out the engine. And eventually the farmer woke up, okay? Because he'd worked so many hours. And that's what it's like on the farm in the fall because there's this sense of urgency. We've got to get the crop out of the field and into the bin before winter. And I know I'm from the north. So when I think of Tennessee, I think, man, you guys don't even have winter. I know you have winter, all right? I know you have, but, but from the north, that's the way people think a lot of times. But you understand, you get snow here too. I know it's like chaotic when it happens, right? But but you get snow here too. So imagine up north though, imagine farming like, like, like where we lived in, in Iowa and for a time lived in Minnesota. Um, that, that four letter word, S-N-O-W, it's coming. And so there's this sense of we have to get the, 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 the grain out of the field and into the bin before snow comes. Now I think of one farm family in particular in, in Northern Iowa where I pastored they were like the epitome of efficiency when it came to farming. I was used to living in Nebraska, kind of family farms where everything was kind of chill and relaxed. And it was this family affair, you know, Aunt, Aunt, Aunt Eva would show up with the coffee and cookies every two hours <laughs> and we'd stop everything we were doing so that we could have coffee and cookies and lunch and breads and all these other wonderful things. That was not the case with this farm family in Northern Iowa. They were the epitome of efficiency. There were three generations. They farmed thousands of acres. Two great big combines, they would come into a field and usually they were just wide open fields, no trees for miles type of thing. Great big wide open fields and they'd have two combines running and as soon as they opened those fields, those combines did not stop until they were done. Until that entire field was empty of all the grain. And so I got to be a part of this in one of the, with one of those families where I watched this efficiency, you know, because they didn't stop to unload the combine, the bigger piece of equipment there, at the end of the field. No, they unloaded it. They call it catching on the run, which means this, that the combine never stops. And he is unloading into that grain cart that you see there, the great big wagon, as both of them are moving at synchronized speed. Because what he will do is he will unload one combine, the guy in the tractor, and that's the, actually the main thing I got to do is run the, the tractor with the grain cart. And so they will, they will synchronize, they will empty that combine, and then he'll go over to the other combine that's across the field and empty him on the run, and then he'll run with that grain cart and that tractor to the three semis that are lined up on the gravel road. There's three guys waiting there, and those semis are running back and forth to the great big grain bins that are there on their, on their huge family farm, and they're unloading those into the grain bins, and there's this, this amazing synchronization of efficiency because they want to get the job done before winter, snow. That's right. That's right. Now think about that in relationship to the church in America today. Are things looking better in America spiritually? Are things looking better across the world spiritually? Or as you think about the climate of today spiritually in the world, does it look like there are storm clouds out on the horizon? Does it look like winter is coming? I think all of us would say it looks like there are storm clouds. If there has ever been a time where there ought to be a sense of urgency for the church of Jesus Christ to reach the world and their world with the gospel, it's right now. It's right now. 
Things are not looking up, they're looking worse. And we ought to realize that winter is coming and there ought to be, in light of the size of the harvest, a sense of urgency to reach your world and reach the world with the gospel of Christ. That's why Jesus says, the size of the harvest is huge. And yet, where is that spirit of excitement and sense of urgency in most Baptist churches? They tell us in North America that 80% of churches in North America are either plateaued or in decline. And of those that are growing, only 1% of churches in North America are growing because of conversion growth, because they're leading people to Christ. Why is that the case? Well, I think in part it's due to what the text says earlier. Notice what the text says earlier in relationship to Jesus' response to the multitudes, verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he what? He was moved with compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You see, urgency is fueled by compassion for souls. It's fueled by that compassion of realizing that every human being on planet earth, including your neighbors, your coworkers, and your friends are going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. Heaven or hell. Do you have a message that might help make sure they're going to heaven? Absolutely, it's called the gospel. And so there ought to be a compassion in our hearts for those who need Jesus Christ. And, and compassion is the result of seeing the needs all around us. In, in, a, in a different text that's similar, and I'll talk about this more in Sunday school this morning or the discipleship hour this morning, in John chapter 4 and verse 35, it says this, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he says, do not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest. In other words, don't say that I've got time to tell others about Christ. There ought to be a sense of urgency. And then what it, what it goes on to say there in, in, John, in John chapter 4 and verse 35 is this. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. In other words, there are people that need Christ. And there ought to be a sense of urgency and a compassion as a result of just seeing the needs of people around you. Do you see the people around you as those who need Jesus Christ? as souls that will spend somewhere for all of eternity. Is that how you see them? Look up at the needs of the harvest. And then thirdly, compassion for the multitudes must become compassion for the individual. By that I mean this, it's not enough, for even for me as a mission president, it's not enough for me to have a burden for the whole wide world, all eight billion souls. The reality of the matter is that God wants me to have a burden for my neighbor as well. And especially for the people in my sphere of influence that have not yet trusted Christ as their savior because we have a message that is so precious. It's called the gospel. I don't know how precisely you explain the gospel. Maybe you do that in terms of the Romans road. I like to explain it in a manner that's centered on the person of God. And so as I explain the gospel, and maybe here this morning as you sit there, or as you listen, maybe even my mention of the gospel is kind of a question mark in your mind. What do I mean by that? Well, it's the good news. And the good news is this, as we think about who God is, the good news is, is that God is personal and he created you for a worshipful relationship with him. Go back to the very beginning in the garden as well as go to the very ending in, in, in the book of Revelation. It's all about a personal relationship with God that is worshipful, that was severed when mankind sinned. 
And so God is personal and he wants a worshipful relationship with you. But secondly, God is holy. And because of sin, we can't enter into his presence. God's personal, but God is holy. God makes it very clear. We can't go to heaven with our sin. So God is personal. God is holy. Thirdly, God is also a God who's just. The Bible says, will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, sin must be punished. And the way that sin is punished is in one of two ways. Either number one, I spend eternity in hell separated from God, enduring the wrath of God for my sin, or sin was punished in the person of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. So God is personal, God is holy, God is just, he must punish sin. But then thirdly, aren't you thankful God is loving? God is loving, the most familiar verse in all the Bible is God so what? He's so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So God is loving. And Jesus Christ died on the cross as the perfect sinless savior for your sin in your place. God is loving. So God is personal. God is holy. God is just. God is loving. And then finally, God is gracious. And by that, I mean this, and the Bible explains this, He's so gracious that he extends to you the free gift of eternal life. For by grace we've been saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the message that we have. And that's the message that I hope every person in this room has embraced. In other words, have you embraced the gospel by repenting of your sin and placing your faith once and for all in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on the cross? Do you know you're going to heaven today because you've done that? Or is there a question mark in your heart and mind about where you will spend eternity? That's the message every one of us needs to embrace, but that's also the message we get to share, the good news. And the size of the harvest reminds us of that necessity. Is there a spirit of excitement? Is there a sense of urgency in your heart today to spread that message, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Secondly, I would also point out the shortage of workers. The text says this, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are what? They're few, the laborers are few. And there weren't enough workers in Jesus' day. It's interesting that Jesus points that out in his day, but it's also applicable today. The need is even greater today. And I need to just pause for a second to make sure you understand this is not just a missions issue. I'm guessing that probably the majority of you here, if you've ever heard this text preached, it's been in the context of missions, right? And that's a fitting application. But the reality of the matter is this, that the shortage of workers is not just a missions issue because the concept of being a harvest worker or harvest laborer is not exclusively for missionaries. If you know Christ as your savior, you ought to be working in the harvest. In other words, there ought to be people in your life that you're trying to reach with the gospel of Christ. So every one of us ought to be in some sense a harvest laborer. So a harvest laborer is not just a missionary, although it obviously fits. Every believer ought to be a harvest laborer, but the the severity and the critical nature of the need is punctuated by what is happening in missions. Because the reality of the matter is today, there is a shrinking pool of folks from from North America, from the United States that are headed into missions. The numbers are shrinking. And this is not exclusively a Baptist missions matter. 
This is true across North America. As a matter of fact, one very large evangelical mission agency, their president put it this way in reference to their mission agency, that they are faced with a 5% decline in their missionary numbers per year for the foreseeable future. And that is not a statistical anomaly. That is pretty normative across American mission agencies. And so as I think about what Jesus said, and then I observe what's happening, especially in the United States in relationship to missions, one of the questions I can't help but ask is this. If the need is so great, and and I'll make a little bit more of a case for that in the discipleship hour, but there are 8 billion souls on planet earth that need the Lord, okay? If the need is so great and there were more or maybe even so many who went into ministry in the past, what is wrong? In other words, is it it that God is calling fewer to be missionaries or maybe even fewer to be pastors? Is God just calling fewer? Is God just deciding, you know what, I'm I'm just not going to do that anymore? I I don't think that's the answer, that God is calling fewer. I think the answer to that question is is that fewer are are willing to say yes to the call of God, to to missions and even to pastoral ministry and even to to ministry as people in the the, the pews that, that serve in the community and reach people for Christ. And so it's contrary to the very nature of God to say it's God's fault. He's just calling pe- fewer people. Fewer people are, are heeding the call. So let me ask a couple of, of application types of questions. First question is, why is the need even greater today? Number one is because of unsurrendered believers. Romans 12.1 still says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. What that means is this, that every one of us ought to live every day with open hands. Every one of us ought to live every day with the spirit of God. I just want to be yours today. I want to serve you today. I want to do whatever you want me to do. I'll go wherever you want me to go. I'll be whatever you want me to be. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Now, does that mean everybody's going to be a missionary? No. But should that be the spirit with which we live? Yes. A spirit of surrender and in, in that spirit of surrender, we ought to ask questions like, does God want me to serve him in harvest ministry? And would you be willing to, if you sense God calling you, maybe even somewhere halfway across the planet, are you living a surrendered life? Number two, and this, this isn't original with me, this came out of a book called The Vanishing Ministry that was written by Woodrow Kroll. Some of you may recognize that name from back to the Bible. He wrote a book, actually he wrote it, for, the first edition of it was written in the 1990s. And, and, and he rewrote it and revised it with new statistics, but it actually got worse from when he wrote the first version to when he did the revision. It's called the vanishing ministry in the 21st century now. And one of the things he says in that is part of the problem is parents. He said this, we give our children to the Lord at baby dedication, then we take them back at graduation. And he cited the typical conversation between a dad, maybe a mom with a child as they approach graduation from high school. And typically the conversation goes something like this. You need to go to college so that you can get a good job and make money because that is the most important thing. Now, they may not say that quite that way, but that's the message they're sending is the importance of making money and doing well instead of having a conversation about where's God in this picture? Have you considered what God God may want you to do with your life? Now, it may mean getting a great job and making lots of money. There's nothing wrong with that. But what happens is there are a lot of parents if that kid says, you know what, I think God might want me to be a missionary. Or I think God might want me to be a pastor. Do you know what a lot of North American parents are saying to that? No, no, hold it, stop. (laughs) Wait, 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 wait a second here. If you go to a Bible college, you realize you won't make any money? 
By the way, I worked into missions for a time at a Bible college, and literally there were parents every year that would refuse to allow their, their born-again parents, born-again children to go to a Bible college for that reason, because they wouldn't make enough money. They wouldn't make enough money. And so parents can become part of the problem. I love the way Woodrow Kroll puts it in his book. He says, many parents perceive that if they commit their children to God, he will cruelly force them to live in poverty and deprivation all of their lives in some far off bug infested jungle. Or worse, they won't experience the glamor of being sent to the mission field, but will experience the horror of being tucked away as a pastor and wife in a little church in a no-name town best described as 10 miles south of resumed speed. By the way, when I pastored in northern Iowa, that was the town. <laughs> Middle of nowhere. I think there were 14,000 people in Wright County, Iowa, and about 5 million chickens. I'm not kidding, okay? And, and probably close to that many pigs, okay? But I'm thankful for parents that were thrilled that I was serving the Lord Jesus Christ in a little place like that. Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, is that your spirit today? You would be thrilled if God called your kids to the mission field, to the pastorate, or are you holding them back from that very prospect? Parents can be part of the problem. The third is the seduction of materialism. I fear that we've developed such a taste for material things that the idea of sacrifice, the idea of self-denial is almost repugnant to the average American Christian. Think about it this way. If God called you to the mission field, then that required that you had to sell all of your stuff, everything you own, and all that you were left with was two suitcases of things to take somewhere across the planet with the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you do it? Or is that very thought something that makes your stomach churn or stirs your soul in a negative way? Can't fathom the idea of giving it all up to go. Perhaps materialism is gripping your heart today. So why is it that fewer are going? I think those are at least three reasons Secondly, I'd like to ask the question, where's the need the greatest? And actually, I'm just going to throw these out and you've got to come to the discipleship hour. I'm going to tell some stories about these. Number one is the, the mega cities of the world, the mega metropolis areas of the world. The, 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 the needs and the opportunities are incredible in those kinds of places. And then secondly, creative access nations. We used to call these restricted access nations, but there are places in the world that are typically communist, Muslim, or radical Hindu where you can't go as a normal missionary with a religious worker's visa, but there are some really exciting things happening in places like that. So stick around for the discipleship hour as I talk about those types of places and answer the question, where is the need the greatest? But my question for you is this, are you willing? Would you go? Would you be willing to be one of those that would help fulfill the fact that the need is so great the size of the harvest is huge and there's this great shortage of workers. Are you willing? Are you surrendered? And then finally, as we wrap up this morning, I want us to notice the solution, the solution of prayer. Notice how Jesus puts it here again in Matthew 9, verse 38 this time. It says this, therefore, Jesus is speaking, therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting the word, the very words that Jesus employs here. 
Because when Jesus here says, pray the Lord of the harvest, the word that he uses is one of four primary Greek words that are used in the New Testament for pray or pray, praying or prayer. And the word that's used here is the word deamai. And then at its core, the, the word deamai means this. It means to beg. It means to beg. As a matter of fact, there are a couple of other texts where some translations actually translate it to beg. I'll give you a couple of examples. You can look them up later if you want to. Luke chapter 5 and verse 12 is the instance of a leper coming to Jesus. He's struggling with leprosy. He meets Jesus. And so what does he do when he meets Jesus? He begs Jesus to heal him. Luke 5, 12. And then there's another example in Luke chapter 9 and verse 38. This time it's a demon-possessed little boy and his daddy. The little boy foams at the mouth. Little boy does harm to himself bodily, and you're his mom or dad. Can you imagine that? And you meet Jesus. What would you do? You would beg Jesus to heal your boy. That's exactly what that daddy did, and that's exactly what Jesus did because that daddy begged him to heal his boy. It's that word, that same Greek word that's used in those texts, translated oftentimes as beg, that's used here in Matthew 9, 38, to pray the Lord of the harvest. So what are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're supposed to be begging Jesus for more harvest workers. Jesus commands us, as a matter of fact, to do that. You see, prayer is needing something so desperately that you beg God to provide it. And in this context, we are being commanded to beg God to provide more harvest laborers. It's his command. Why did Jesus tell us to pray instead of telling us to go? Why did Jesus tell us to pray in, in terms of for more harvest laborers instead of just praying for people's salvation? Now, we know he does that, right? We know he does that in other texts. We know even in this context, Matthew chapter 10, he sends them out. But I think that's essential for us to ask that question because prayer often makes the one an, the, praying the answer to their own prayers. That's why Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest, because then you may be the answer to your own prayers. I like how Wearsby puts it. When we pray as he commanded, we will see what he saw, we will feel what he felt, and we will do what he did. You see, the best thing that, that you can do to become a part of the harvest of souls is begin praying and asking God to send workers. And while you're doing that, ask yourself the question, am I the answer to my own prayers? Am I the one who's supposed to get involved in harvest ministry? Harvest prayer should be both a personal priority for every Christian and a corporate priority for every church out of obedience to Jesus' command here in Matthew 9, 38. Yet, and I pastored for 26 years, if you looked at the average church prayer list or prayer bulletin, what would the majority of the prayer requests be in it? The majority of them would be physical needs. Does that mean we shouldn't pray for physical needs? No, that's not the case at all. But in light of the command of Jesus here, don't you think that what ought to be a top priority for every Christian in every church is praying for more harvest laborers. My fear is that Christians may pray more about getting saints out of the hospital than sinners out of hell. And they may pray the Lord of the hospital more than the Lord of the harvest. Jesus wants us to beg the Lord of the harvest to send more laborers. Will you make that a prayer priority on a personal level? And will you as a church embrace that as a prayer priority priority corporately. God wants us to beg him for more harvest laborers. 
As we wrap up this morning, let me give you four things that I think God wants each of us to do in light of what we've heard from the word of God today. Number one, I believe that God wants each of us to ask him to give us a spirit of excitement and a sense of urgency fueled by a compassion for souls, fueled by the compassion that realizes that everyone is going to spend eternity in either heaven or hell. Secondly, surrender your life to God's will. Are you living a life of open-handedness saying, God, I'm yours today and every day. Do what you want to in me and through me, I'm yours. Thirdly, God wants us to encourage our children and even our grandchildren to consider ministry. Don't be the stumbling block that would hold somebody back that is considering ministry. And then finally, God wants us to make praying for harvest workers a daily habit, a daily habit. After all, Jesus says here what? He says, pray or beg. It's a command, by the way, the Lord of the harvest to send more harvest laborers. And so when is the last time you obeyed that command? Is obedience to that command a regular part of your life? When I, when I started at Baptist Mid-Missions, one of the first things I emphasized as the new president was the importance of prayer. And so we initiated what we refer to as Pray 938. And Pray 938 is based on this passage of scripture. The 938 is from Matthew 938. And so I encouraged and challenged our mission family. And now as I'm in churches, I encourage everybody else to join me in, in obeying God's command to, to beg the Lord of the harvest in light of Matthew 9.38. This is what I do, okay? Uh, my cell phone alarm is set for 9.38 in the morning and 9.38 at night to remind me to at least twice a day ask God to send more missionary laborers, to send more harvest laborers into the mission field. As a matter of fact, we'll be sitting in a staff meeting at 9.38 in, on Wednesdays in Baptist Missions Global Ministry Center and if my alarm goes off, whoever is talking at that time gets to pray. We stop, stop everything we're doing, we pray, okay? So that's kind of part of this. And, but also the other part of it is, is this, is that I'm inviting other people to join me in that. My goal is to have 20,000 plus prayer partners from across churches and across the, the, the United States, from churches like this that would join me in making a commitment similar to that. The commitment would simply be this. I'm joining to be a prayer partner. I can pray at least once a day for more harvest laborers. Who in this room can't do that? Who in this room can't at least pray once a day? for more harvest laborers. And so if you make your way after the service out to, to, the, to the lobby, there's a, a table and you'll see um, something like this that you see behind me, a little booklet that's actually 30 days of how to pray. And there's a sign-up sheet and by signing up and giving us your email address, you're just simply saying, I'll pray at least, I'll try to pray once a day, okay? I'll try to pray once a day. And then I'll send you a monthly email that reminds you and encourages you and maybe gives you a new story or a new account of what God's doing through your prayers. And then I'd love to have you grab one of those booklets or scan the QR code and download the app because there's an app that actually reminds you to pray. And it, what, what that booklet and the app does is it works its way through the world and helps, helps you know, convey a burden for the needs of the world. So you're praying for no, more harvest laborers in Europe. You're, you're praying for more harvest laborers in, in Africa. You're praying for more harvest laborers and it gives you a little bit of a glimpse of how you can fulfill God's command to beg the Lord of the harvest for more harvest laborers. I hope that many of you will join me in that endeavor. And then let's see what God does. Because God accomplishes impossible things through the prayers of his people. May we reach the world for Jesus Christ as a fruit of that prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
Thank you for your family here at Grace Baptist and the joy it is to be with them. I pray that the message that they've heard from your word today would stir each of our, her- our hearts to reach our world and to reach the world with the gospel of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me? Thank you, Dr. Odell, from, for uh, the challenge from the word this morning and at the end to pray, 938. We can do that, right? Will you join me as we sing a song of really surrender, uh, the song Unbroken Praise, but sing that with me as we close this morning. Praise unbroken, praise unending, be yours, be yours forevermore. Praise untainted, praise unfading, be yours, be yours forevermore. Be yours, be yours forevermore.
Well, in case you didn't recognize any of those people, that is something that took place just this last week at uh, the place where we use for our school at uh, Morris Hill there. That car line care was an opportunity that we had to just uh, thank and to love on the parents that come there every morning and drop off their children. Uh, we had a few that tried to bring both their cars with just two kids through, and we said, no, we figured you out. No, uh, no we, we had a great time, and I appreciate every one of you that uh, were part of that and helped us with that, and uh, it was a great opportunity just to love on and to remind them that Grace Baptist Church and Grace Baptist Academy are truly one ministry, and one of the biggest ministries that we have is our Christian school. So just grateful for all that helped us in that. That time. There's a lot of things in your bulletin, and I'm not going to take a lot of time this morning just to walk you through it, but uh, there are uh, significant amounts of information that's coming into that. Uh, but I do want to highlight just a couple of things, and one of those is our trunk or treat that's coming up here uh, this coming Saturday. And so we still need a lot of candy. Uh, you, we, uh, last year, I think we had a partial, if not just one bag of candy left. And I think maybe the Grabacki kids got it. But in any case, uh, uh, but in any case, we're, we need a lot of extra candy. Uh, this has been, last year was the first year we've done in quite some time, and it was huge. Our community uh, came, uh, we had uh, a large number of people who walked onto our property there, and it is on our property, and uh, grateful for one of these events that we're able to still do there. And so this is something that we need help with. Uh, this is really today the last day to sign up to let Sandy know if you can provide a trunk it's a trunk or treat uh, so it's just the way you, you decorate your car the trunk of your car uh, you know uh, last year one of us uh, had a, a little soccer goal and they kicked a soccer ball some of them had hay and uh, you know did ornate flowers and all kinds of things and then some people just handed candy I mean it was just you know you don't have to go real extreme or anything but it's just sort of a decoration it's a time interacting with the community and uh, being able to share with those that come through our project property. And so let Sandy know if you're able to help with that. Also sign up in the foyer or check the information in the bulletin about uh, some other things that we do need, uh, like candy. And if you're able to, if you can, uh, you know, this evening, even if you have children part of the Awana or youth ministry here this evening, uh, if you can drop off more of the candy, then if not, you can drop it by the office. Uh, 1519 Morris Hill Road is where the church office is located. And uh, it's in one of the little houses there. And so you can do that through the week. There's a lot of invitation flyers uh, in your community, in your neighborhood, uh, if you have families uh, with children or you know they have grandchildren and uh, they're in the area that would like to come, give them a flyer, let them know about it. And it's all free of charge and uh, everything there is a way just to connect. Part of that, though, is if you're on there with us, you're on the campus, be thinking about ways to start a conversation, greeting, welcoming, being friendly. And if the Lord allows it to turn towards spiritual things. Be open to that. Be ready to hand a track. Be ready to start a conversation and uh, be preparing for that and praying for those who will be. This is, again, just like we heard this morning, the challenge. This is a part of our harvest field. This is where we are. And this is just a, one of the many myriad of ways that we have to introduce the gospel into a conversation with someone and uh, less about inviting them to a church. We want to invite them to Christ. And so hopefully our hearts will have opportunity to do that as we share even through uh, this time. One of the other things is Operation Christmas Child. We do this annually. There are several boxes out in the foyer. Uh, you can pick up one of those. It's a great opportunity to share some good things with some young people across the world. Uh, it's a 
great ministry, a great opportunity. And the deadline for turning those back in here at the church is November 12th. You can do it later if you'd like, but you're going to have to find your own donation center. Uh, but we will take those for you if you bring them back here on a Sunday morning or even in the Sunday evening, and uh, especially have those here before November the 12th or by November 12th. And then last, as we mentioned, discipleship hour, which is going to start here in about 15, 20 minutes. And uh, that is after the fellowship time back in the foyer. All of our adult classes, if you would, plan to come back into here. And I'm just finding Steve. Are the youth in here as well? Okay, so the youth are back in here. And uh, so enjoy the time of the discipleship hour with Dr. Odell. There's a lot of neat things that's going on that he's going to share. And I think it's important for us at church to be praying with them and their missionaries and the ones that they help get to the field and uh, pray with them as they're seeing God do some amazing things in different parts as he'll be sharing about what BMM is doing around the world even here at home. So plan on being able to stay and uh, enjoy the, the, the discipleship hour with us. Let's be dismissed at this time. Go and enjoy the fellowship time and uh, looking forward to seeing you back here a little bit around 11 o'clock and uh, we'll see you soon.